I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 1. The title of today's message is A Prayer for the Church's Knowledge. When considering that topic of prayer, what is it that leads us to our knees more often than not? As we mentioned last week, clearly, if I were to give one example, the atrocity of abortion is a worthwhile prayer. What about as we've mentioned in the past and even devoted a message to, the current attack on biblical sexuality and God's definition of what marriage looks like or the distinction between a man and a woman. Maybe it's the state of our current political leaders. Scripture commands us to pray for them, does it not? What's more, it also confirms in the book of Proverbs that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Moreover, in light of that proverb, there's just no debating the fact. Let's be real, amen? That one political platform certainly reflects one side of that proverb more than the other. And for that reason, we should be concerned for praying for that. What about personal circumstances? In a world of sin, we can't escape disease and sickness, heartbreak and death. In many respects, because of that, we're often driven once again, on our knees to cry out to God for relief and for healing. And by all means, we should do so. Maybe it's a personal choice with weighty consequences. Who among us should be opposed to asking the Lord for wisdom in the midst of situations such as this. Nevertheless, having mentioned the necessity and the importance of all of these matters, allow me to offer a different perspective. Regarding the evil of abortion, the perversion of worldly sexuality, or the abuse of wicked rulers, cultural victories do nothing to actually stop the onslaught of depravity. Oh, they may slow the decay, but what good is a band-aid when you're in a battle with gangrene? The only option in such battle is a gospel antibiotic, if you will, that eliminates the rot. 
in order to see true change. Regarding our personal afflictions or decisions, John MacArthur was once quoted as saying, as much as they are material and important, they are immaterial. The greatest goal, the greatest primary need for us all is our growth in Christ. Our knowledge of Christ. Be that as it may. When it comes to the culture, what is it that God uses as a light in this dark culture? As the light of the world. A city as Matthew says, that is on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's the church. The called out ones. When it comes to our personal needs, what is it that God often uses to minister to the hurting, to provide instruction and leadership for His people? It's the church. I've used this quote before, but it is so profound and so rich and so good. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century wealth preacher, once stated, and I quote, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Amen. You see, my friends, as the watered-down church of our day and has really been an affliction throughout the history of the church, seeks to win the world by being like it, she does nothing but create many false converts and allow sin to run amok. However, Beloved, as the true church, we can be a light, a city on a hill once again, in a world in need of such light, in need of such truth. We can speak truth in love. We can be a means of contributing to true heart transformation through the gospel. We can come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ for the benefit of the sanctification of the church. This must be a major aspect of our prayer life. And our emphasis, hence the name of our title for today, for this morning, Christ gave his life for the church. In light of that, how vital should our commitment and concern and care be for her? Clearly, our commitment to pray for the bride of Christ would be a reflection of that priority. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul 
now after coming off the back of a tremendously long sentence that we explored in verses 4 or 3 through 14, now begins another very lengthy long sentence in verses 15 through 23. Paul is now going to switch gears from a heavy emphasis upon doctrine and theology to now prayer. Within this section, he'll communicate a timeless theme. The theme that consistent prayer for the churches, get that word there, the churches, sanctification is essential. As for our exposition, we'll, blank, we'll break this lengthy section of 15 through 23 into two parts. This morning we'll deal with verses 15 through 18. Three needs this morning should guide us and provide us direction in answering the question, how can we pray For the church's sanctification. With that said, would you stand with me please? As we read our passage here for this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 18. For this reason I too. Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus. Which exists among you. And your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? You may be seated. The first need for us to unpack here this morning is number one, saving knowledge. We'll see this in the first two verses, 15 and 16. Now before we address the primary emphasis of this need... I want to deal with several secondary, yet still very important points of focus. Right away, you'll see in the beginning, this significant point of application in these words, as he mentions, for this reason. Why is this significant? Here as he uses this phrase, for this reason, We understand, just in a plain sense reading of the text, that he's pointing back to what he just discussed. Notice he says, for this reason, and then proceeds to communicate his commitment to prayer. As he points back to verses 3 through 14 and and all of this great, rich doctrine and theology, he now says, for this reason. And then proceeds to fervently pray for the church's sanctification. Nonetheless, again, why is this important? 
Well, as we discussed all through verses 3 through 14, we saw God's plan of salvation fully on display. We saw that God is sovereign in this plan of salvation. Well, the reason why I just want to briefly touch on the significance of this phrase for this reason and why that leads him to pray in such a manner is, have you ever heard the objection? Well, if God is sovereign, why pray? A common objection. Similar to our response in matters of evangelism, the simple answer to that question is that God commands us to do so. Amen? Nevertheless, even here, in the context, what does Paul do after extolling the sovereignty of God in the plan of salvation? He then jumps right into, for this reason... Praying for the church's sanctification. Do you see it? It's a motivation for him to pray. I don't want us to miss this. We've seen it throughout. The reality that God is sovereign is a tremendous boost of confidence in any area of Christian obedience. Whether that be evangelism or prayer. Secondly, though, and this is key for the overall theme of this passage, within these verses, Paul sets the focus upon the church as opposed to individuals. Where in the previous passage, as he focuses upon the individual salvation, of souls. Now he's focused on the church as a whole. How do we know that? Well, we see this behind the scenes in Paul's use of the Greek plural you, which we've made reference to in the past, which is not used in the English language, but here in the original text. Four separate times, Paul uses the plural you, as if to say, you all, you the church, throughout this passage. Additionally, don't miss his expression of thankfulness in verse 16. Obviously a good reminder for any of us, as we still wrestle with the flesh, in prayer at times, the best of us are tempted to mutter or complain Even in our prayers, yet here Paul expresses his gratitude for the church. And then finally, notice his thankfulness is categorized with a commitment to consistency. In verse 16, he says, as you can see, the following in explaining his commitment. He says that he does not cease giving thanks For you, plural you, the church as a whole. And Paul often does this, whether it's in Romans chapter 1 verse 9 or 1 Thessalonians or even in Colossians. These are just a few of many examples 
of Paul's commitment to either constant or without ceasing consistent commitment to prayer. Now, does this mean that he prays literally every second of every day? Of course not. What is he saying then? It's all about a lifestyle of thankful prayer. What's more, to stay on point with our context here in this passage, uh, a lifestyle, a consistent commitment to prayer for the church as a whole. It's not a passing thought for him, nor should it be for the Christian. It's a strong urge to practice consistent prayer for the church's sanctification. So, having briefly mentioned those secondary yet important points, what about our primary emphasis and focus for this first need? We called it saving knowledge. Look again at verse 15. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith, In the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Now, in order to catch a glimpse of Paul's consistent commitment in his heart, I want us to interpret Scripture with Scripture. You don't need to turn there. You can reference them and look at it later, but listen for the common expression of his conviction in these similar passages. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, he says, But the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience with a sincere faith. And then one more. In Philemon, verses 4 and 5 of that one chapter, he says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Do you see it? His constant common theme and desire to express his thankfulness in a specific manner for the church as a whole. In his prayer, is he expressing his excitement for their standing against the evil of their day? Is he expressing his excitement and his thankfulness For the healing of infirmities within the church. Is he expressing his thankfulness and excitement 
in gratitude for successful decision-making, so to speak. No. He's expressing his thankfulness, his gratitude, in truly experienced saving knowledge amongst the saints. Now, once again, does this mean these other matters are not important? Of course not. We established that in the introduction. Nonetheless, let us not forget what is primary. What is material? Going back to the MacArthur quote. The salvation of souls is what truly transforms hearts and causes change. What's more, the church is often a conduit in that. Now, regarding the experience of saving knowledge, some of you may have noticed my use of the adverb truly in describing it. Why is that important to emphasize? Well, I think it does relate in some respects to Paul's continual use of faith and love together as we just explored in all of those passages as well as our passage here this morning. Scripture often connects these two inseparable truths. Once again, though, why is it vital to distinguish this That Paul is praying and thankful and that even for us as we get to application, we should be concerned about true saving knowledge within the church. It's very possible, I would add, that within the context of the Ephesian culture, which we're all aware of from our introductory message, that this possibly relates to the tension between Jews and Gentiles within this culture. Paul will address this even more in chapters 2 and 3. For believers in Ephesus to know that they were now one in Christ would have been a wonderful example of true saving knowledge. Be that as it may, as the Bible often connects these terms, I think it really boils down to the fruit of any true saving knowledge. We saw this all throughout 1 John, did we not? That the children of God practice righteousness. They practice love of the brethren. Amen? Or as we also saw in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. And that verse reads, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that we would be shown that they are all not of us. Unfortunately, Paul would have been very familiar with the reality of false converts within the body as a whole. Yet he also would have been Very familiar with the promise of Christ from Matthew chapter 16. 
where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Given those truths, Paul made mention of his great joy and thankfulness for true saving knowledge within this church. True saving knowledge that will always reflect reflect faith and love. Not on a constant basis, as if to say that we don't wrestle with sin, but going back to the concept of 1 John, that it will practice such. With that said, how might we respond in light of this need? A need represented in Paul's consistent commitment to express thankfulness for true saving knowledge. Well, certainly, let us simply follow suit in expressing thankfulness for a church of redeemed saints. Truly redeemed saints, washed by the blood of the Lamb. Moreover, a church that will embrace her call as a light in this world of darkness. What's more, would would we be a church that would pray with conviction that God may perhaps grant his faith and repentance to those who perhaps are not truly in the fold? That he'd regenerate hearts in order for them to truly receive saving knowledge. A knowledge that will inevitably produce love for the church. So, when the church lives in saving knowledge, she cannot help but pursue more knowledge. Here lies our connection to the second need, and that's number two. Full knowledge. Full knowledge. We'll see this in verse 17. In this verse, we have, in essence, the prayer of Paul's desire for the church's sanctification. What is sanctification but growing in holiness? And here, he desires, as you can see within the text, that God may give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, for those of us that have been Christians for any amount of time, we we fully understand what transitions after true saving knowledge. A knowledge that grows in maturity. A knowledge that becomes fuller, more defined. Listen to how Paul describes this type of prayer for fuller knowledge within the church as a whole. And his correlating prison epistle of Colossians. You don't need to turn there. Chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 read, For this reason also... 
since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased, notice the similarities, to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. A perfect reflection of a prayer for a church to grow in God's will. How do we know God's will? Romans chapter 12 speaks directly to that. But we know it through his revealed word. And in a life such as this, we bear fruit in every good work, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, In light of this critical need for the church, I want to make two connections to build an illustration for our day and age. First off, dealing with the church in Ephesus. Don't forget, as we saw within the context, the constant pressure within this historical account of that church to combine Or use the word syncretize, which is the same as combine with false ideas true Christianity. Within their context, there were many influences. One in particular, that heavy supernatural influence. Some of you may remember from Acts chapter 19, we saw that pressure as they came together to burn all of the magic books, so to speak to distance themselves, to separate themselves from this pressure to come together with false ideology. As for us, unfortunately, similar types of pressure continue to influence the church of our day. Clearly, a push for a softer, seeker-sensitive type of Christianity would be one example. Instead of praying for and desiring a rich, sanctified, and fuller knowledge of God in the church, what do we see more and more? But different forms of what J.C. Ryle coined jellyfish Christianity. All in the name of an unbiblical approach to be like the world. To appease it. For an example of this. Listen to the following two quotes from well-known pastor and writer Andy Stanley. He said, guys that teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that is just cheating. That isn't how you grow people. Or how about this one? My challenge is to read culture and to read an audience and ask, what is the felt need? Or perhaps, what is more important? What is an unfelt need they need to feel that I can address? 
This all coming from the man who constantly attacks the authority of Scripture. Pastor John MacArthur had this to say concerning this sad approach to ministry. And I quote, There's a serious defect in a so-called minister content to be proud of assembling non-believers and calling them a church. Something deeply wrong there. Modern evangelicalism seems to exhaust every imaginable and unimaginable means to attract and collect non-Christians into a building and then call it a church and call it church growth. Maybe there's a better way to identify these places. Let's call them non-churches. End quote. Beloved, Paul here in verse 17 is not praying for just a sprinkle of Jesus for their felt needs buffet. He's praying for an all-you-can-eat, sword-piercing revelation of Christ. Amen? Amen? Look over at chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, and we see Paul speak even more of this need and its results for the church. Chapter 4, I'll read verses 11 through 14, read. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there, by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's what the church needs when it comes to maturity, rich, full, spiritual wisdom, revelation of Christ. This should be our desire as we established in the introduction to pray that this would be the case for the church as a whole and of course for us here at Miriam Christian Chapel. So, before we move to our final need, what might be a specific action for us to point to for our body? Obviously, as I just stated, let us not grow weary in practicing consistent prayer for a fuller knowledge of Christ. That's simple from the text. Moreover, 
I would also add, which might not be as simple, but I think you will see the logical flow. There's a fruit of this prayer that involves our own involvement. Whether it's from the pulpit, a Sunday school class, or men's or women's ministry, or community groups, whatever it may be in regards to spiritual training, let us collectively apply ourselves together as we pray for the church's sanctification. This should only increase our own dedication and commitment to apply ourselves. Whether that's just through simple participation or if, or if it's even through a greater commitment to learn and apply ourselves as we pray for the body as a whole. God, my friends, will surely, with that type of prayer, protect this church and grow this church. And you know what? Numbers are irrelevant. Are we growing in Christ? This is what is material. Would we be excited if the the Lord in his providence, according to Matthew 16, by the use of faithful commitment to ministry, grew this church in numbers? Of course we would. That's not our concern. We desire to be faithful. We desire to grow in maturity. Numbers are irrelevant. My friends, this is what has hijacked too many churches as they're overly concerned about bringing in numbers. What's more, with such commitment, we'll stand apart as a true refuge of hope in a sea of counterfeits. So, as the church experiences true saving knowledge, which inevitably produces fuller knowledge, she then becomes more aware of the third need, and that's number three, our final need, confident knowledge. We'll see this in verse 18. Now, there's much that we could cover in this one verse, but I want to keep it somewhat brief and provide a final word of encouragement. We've seen it time and time again throughout these messages in Ephesians. These truths of God's word are just incredibly encouraging and reassuring and uplifting the depths of this big God theology that Paul expounds leads us all to trust even more in Christ alone. With that said, Paul continues to provide this reassuring truth and prayer with several points. Let's touch on a couple as we draw to a close. First off, notice the verb enlightened. Grammatically, it's written in a way that continues to communicate 
and demonstrate his work in our knowledge. That's to say that he is performing it and we are receiving it. What's more, it's completed in the past and ongoing into the future. So there's this confidence, even in his prayer, that they would be enlightened, which we can hold to as well. Secondly, notice the words, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Here, once again, the focus of confidence continues. Remember, this calling, we've established this multiple times. Paul has just spent over 200 words communicating the effectual nature of this calling. Nothing will thwart the hand of God. Moreover, it's vital for us to grasp the Bible's meaning of the word hope. It's not subjective as we might perceive regarding hope in our typical language. It's all about certainty. It's all about confidence. And then finally, he prays that the church may know the riches of his glorious inheritance. This word riches, it's all about a high place of honor, which is designed, beloved, for you. And by the way, notice the text says this is his inheritance. Would any of us doubt the power of God? To bring about his inheritance. To bring it to fruition. An inheritance which we saw in verse 11. Also applies to you and I. So. I want to close. With a quote from Spurgeon that ties this all together. As you listen to this quote, note the reference, here I go with another military illustration, to an army. By God's grace, and I'm not quoting yet, would we be a people who are praying for a qualified army? True saving knowledge. Would we be a people who are praying for a well-trained army, fuller, completer knowledge? Would we be a people that are praying for an army filled with courage, confident knowledge? Spurgeon said, and I quote, Alas! Much has been done of late to promote the production of dwarfish Christians. Poor, sickly believers turn the church into a hospital rather than an army. Oh, to have a church built up with the deep godliness of people 
who know the Lord in their very hearts and will seek to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, end quote. Hmm. Will you join me? This is what God desires of His church, the church in which He shed His blood for. This is what God desires for Miriam Christian Chapel. Amen? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that provides the direction that we need. Lord, thank you, Lord, for the redemption of our souls. We pray even now as we prepare our hearts and minds to reflect upon you and upon your sacrifice, O God, that if there be anyone here today, Lord, who has never truly experienced saving knowledge, would you call them, would you draw them, Would you convict them of their sins? I cry out to you, unbeliever. Turn from your sin. Receive Christ today. And this table of remembrance is for you. We worship you, O God. We glorify you. And we lift up the name of Jesus in all that we do. And let the church say collectively, Amen.